0: All right. Well, good morning, everybody. If you could uh, wave at the folks out in the hallway, whoever's planning to join us, we're going to begin. I'd like to pray and then we'll jump in for our final installment of how to study the Bible. So let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much for the gift of your word. It is such a joy and a treasure that we can open this book that has been written for us, preserved for us, given to us And on the pages of Scripture, we come to know you, we come to understand who you are, we catch a glimpse of your glory. And as we do, it has such a transforming impact on our lives and and leads us to know you and to enjoy you. We're so grateful for this gift. Help us to be good stewards of your word, to rightly handle it, to study it faithfully, to study it persistently, um, and and to study it rightly so that we might uh, truly see everything that you have for us to see within these pages. So, Lord, bless our, our time together this morning. May it be helpful and instructive for all who are present. Amen. All right, so Stephen has been giving basically an overview of what some would call the inductive Bible study method. Basically, we open God's Word, we start asking questions. What does it mean? What, what are the details of the text? And we're trying to discover uh, what is the truth of Scripture uh, f- for ourselves in studying Scripture directly, So this is the the final lesson. I'm not going to go through any specific uh, new steps that we haven't already heard. This is more so what you might call an application of some of the things that Stephen has been uh, teaching over the last number of weeks. Um, So we'll sort of apply some of the different um, uh, uh, steps that Stephen has talked about. But I'd like to cover nine common Bible study errors. Uh, This is just sort of a, a topical, practical lesson. If you're going to open the Bible, read it for yourself, study it. What's the wrong way to do it? Um, and, and those of you who maybe have ever done training um, at your job, training in a workplace, you might show the people at your training, here's some key mistakes you want to avoid. Um, if you're coaching sports, uh, for instance, if you're coaching you know, basketball, you're going to say, you know, well, there's a certain way you want to line up, and a lot of guys get their elbow out, so make sure you keep your elbow in. Like, there's a lot of common mistakes that people make. People do it with studying the Bible as well, and there's more than nine But I've sort of grouped these together, just a few that that tend to be fairly common. And hopefully it will be helpful to you. So we're going to start simple. The first mistake, the first common error when it comes to studying the Bible is not doing it. Uh, Not studying the Bible um, at at the risk of being over simple. Um, And there's a few ways we see this this comes out. One would just be not reading it at all. But I think even people who do occasionally read uh, Bible verses... They're not really studying the Bible. Uh, maybe you get um, the verse a day on your phone, which is better than nothing. I- I'm glad if you do that. But if that's your only Bible study, is the verse of the day on your phone, or if your only Bible study is maybe you know, a-, a daily devotional book that's got you know, one little verse and a couple thoughts, that's not bad. That's good. It can be encouraging. It can be helpful. But I would call that snack reading. Um, it's very, um, it's like a little snack. And there's not a lot of spiritual nourishment that comes from just sort of taking a verse here, a verse there. Uh, Snack reading doesn't yield spiritual nourishment. Um, Another uh, thing people might fall into would be what you could call spoon feeding. Um, When you just depend on what other people tell you the Bible means, that's not studying the Bible for yourself. Um, John Piper has written before that raking is easy But all you get is leaves. Digging is hard, but you might find diamonds. We're drawn towards things that are easy. And it's easier for me to read what someone else said about the Bible than to study it for myself. And I think we should do both. I'm not disparaging listening to good Bible teaching, not disparaging commentaries, not disparaging uh, listening to sermons or other things like that. I'm just saying there needs to be direct engagement with God's word. And I think Stephen's uh, very, uh, he's emphasized that very well over the last number of weeks. Um, and, and this takes a lot of effort. Second uh, 2 Timothy 2.7, the Apostle Paul writes, Think over what I say. For the Lord will give you understanding in everything. Think over what I say. There is meditation. There's chewing on it. There's, there's time that is spent. It's not a little snack. And it's not just depending on someone else to sort of spoon feed you what the Bible means. I think another way that not studying the Bible comes out is, is when, you, when you only look at one specific verse and you're not really studying Scripture as a whole, it's sort of like the little kid at the baseball game back in the 1940s who sneaks up behind the outfield fence, and he looks through a knot hole. If he looks over this way, he can see the right fielder. If he scoots over this way, he can sort of see the, the second baseman and, and, the, and the shortstop. If he looks over this way, he can see the first baseman and the dugout on that side. But he's never really seeing the whole game. When you and I just take a little verse here, a little verse there— we're, we're not seeing the breadth and the depth of God's word. We're not taking in the panorama of God's grace by seeing the whole thing. It takes extended Bible study to read bigger chunks and to study books of the Bible, to study whole sections of the Bible, like maybe the Pentateuch, the first five books. So when you do snack reading or spoon feeding or you just look through the little knothole. hole you're not going to be nourished. You're going to be dependent on others, and you'll only gain limited insight. So the first common era or, or error of, of uh, Bible study is just not studying, uh, not studying the Bible. So what's the solution for that? Study the Bible. Okay, next point. Um, another error. Now we're going to get a little more specific. Uh, probably the most common error, and this is very broad, would be missing the context. And, and I'd like to just share some ex- examples as we go through these. You all are familiar with Philippians 4.13. It's probably uh, one of the more common verses in our culture. And it says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And it's easy for us to sort of, you know, use this verse as an example. We can pick on athletes who write this verse on their shoes. We can maybe pick on the motivational speakers. We can pick on the Christian coffee mugs and the t-shirts that take this verse and lift it out of its context And sort of grab onto it, and they assume it has a meaning that's actually not what the text means. Let me ask a question. What is Paul's situation here as he writes this letter? He's in prison. Okay, so this starts to narrow the context. When Paul says, I can do all things through him who strengthens me, his situation is not one of triumph and victory and success. It's not one that even reflects an outcome that he desired, he didn't want to be stuck there. Second question What is Paul talking about in this section of Scripture? He's talking about contentment. If you go to Philippians 4, he's saying that I have learned how to abound and how to be abased. I've learned how to have everything I want, everything I need. I've also been in situations where I go without. And I have learned in every situation that I'm in to be content. And he knows his readers are going to say, That sounds really hard to do. It sounds difficult to be content when you don't have the things that you want, you don't even have the things you feel you need. And he says, it's not too hard. I can do all things, including this, through him who strengthens me. So then we ask the question, to what does all things refer? Well, in Paul's context, it means being poor. means going without, experiencing lack. So this verse, to say I can do all things through him who strengthens me, is often misinterpreted and therefore misapplied. People understand it to mean that anything I can dream, I can do because God's going to help me. And while it may be encouraging for them to think that, that's sort of missing the context of this Bible verse. This Bible verse ought to be very encouraging to, to remind us to encourage our faith that no matter what the difficulties and adversities we face, that God through his spirit will supernaturally empower us to trust him and to persevere, to be content. So that's a very different context than oftentimes people think. So when we we study um, the Bible, we need to pay attention to the context. We need to try to understand the words and phrases that are in this larger flow of what the author is saying, to study how the the story is unfolding, to, to try to grasp the flow of the story or the psalm or whatever it may be. So missing the context is one of the most common errors when people study the Bible. Third, and this is a very common one as well would be reading yourself into the text. Reading yourself into the text. Uh, go ahead and turn to Jeremiah 29. This is, a, again, I'm using sort of very easy examples that a lot of you probably already agree with, but I hope that you will take these ideas and apply them in, in every passage. But a very common, uh, commonly quoted verse, Jeremiah 29, 11 says, "'For I know the plans I have for you,' declares the Lord, "'plans for welfare and not for evil,' Plans to give you a future and a hope. This is Jeremiah. So what is the danger of reading ourselves into the text? Well, let's just look at this text a little bit. Who is this text originally written to? Well, let's look in Jeremiah 29, verse 1. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles and to the priests, the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. All right, so there's a little bit of context. So let's apply the, the, the second error. Let's try to understand the context here. There's 28 chapters that came before this, and there's a lot of bad news. There's a lot of judgment. There's a lot of sin, and there's a lot of consequences for that sin. Uh, this is written to Israel, um, because well, they're already in captivity. There's a lot of bad things that have been hap- that have been uh, happening. We go to the beginning of this book, and Jeremiah is talking about all the bad stuff that's happening to them: exile, overthrow. Um, and it says to the surviving elders of the exiles, a lot of people died when Babylon overthrew Jerusalem, and they were taken away from their homeland into exile. So this is very serious context. And this letter contains devastating promises of captivity in exile. Look in verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back into this place. So this word of comfort, I know the plans I have for you, comes right on the heels of you're going to be in captivity for 70 long years. That's heavy. This promise of restoration for their homeland is also linked very closely to their future repentance. Verse 10, we already read that. Verse 11, that's our our verse in view. I know the plans I have for you. Look in verse 12. Then, at the end of this 70 years, you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord, and I will restore your fortunes and gather you from all the nations and all the places where I have driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to the place from which I sent you into exile. So as we, we study this verse, it's important in Jeremiah 29, 11 that we not read ourselves into the text. This is not a blanket promise of prosperity for all Christians. It's, a, it's historically anchored in this situation of God's judgment and his restoration of Israel. And it is an aspect of his covenant with his people. He had promised them, he'd made a promise to Abraham to make them a great nation and bless them and give them this land. Well, it looks like God's going back on that promise. They're not experiencing blessing, they're experiencing judgment. They're not in the land, they're in captivity. And it seems like their enemies are thriving while they, God's people, are suffering. This brings into question whether or not God actually keeps his promises. And God says, yes, I will keep my promises. At the end of 70 years, I'm going to bring you back. And and this is linked to their repentance. When they turn from their idols, there will be restoration. So it's not just a blanket promise of prosperity to all Christians. However, from this passage, we do learn something about God's purposes. That God is gracious, and though he disciplines those he loves... He is faithful to his promises. And so we can draw those principles out and apply them, but it is very important that we not read ourselves into the text and miss who this was originally to, who this was originally for, so that we can not draw the wrong implications from this. Otherwise, you start looking at your life and you're saying, well, when I consider my own welfare my own future. There's not a lot of hope. There's not a lot of blessing. It seems like God's plans aren't very good for me right now. You might be tempted to discouragement or disillusionment, saying, well, yeah, that sounds great for some people, but God's not doing that for me. That can cause a crisis of faith. It's important we not read ourselves into the text, that we read it rightly in its historical context. From that, we draw out principles about God, and then we can apply those principles to our own lives. So be careful not to read yourself into the text. A fourth error, and that's what you might call making a general principle, a general truth, into a specific or a personal truth. Here's an example of this. Uh, Proverbs 22.6 says, train up a child in the way he should go. Even when he is old, he will not depart from it. So what's the danger of making a general into a specific? Well, this comes from the book of Proverbs. And if we understand what Proverbs are, if we understand the genre correctly, as Stephen laid out for us, these Proverbs give us basic common sense realities. They give us generalities. These things are usually true to life. This is how the world tends to work. What these Proverbs are not are a promise or... Or an exhaustive truth claim that says this is always true in every case with no exceptions. It's a general truth. It's not a promise. It is a principle. And if, again, if we make this into a personal promise, if we make this general truth into a specific promise for my life, it invites either disillusionment or despair. We start thinking, yeah, right, this can't be true because God didn't do it in my family. So God's a liar or the Bible's not true. Or we think, well, God always tells the truth and his word is always true, so I must have failed. It must be my fault. I tried, I did my best, but it's my fault that I have a wayward adult child. If we misunderstand this verse, we will either fall into disillusionment or despair because we've made a general principle into a specific promise. So we want to be careful not to make general truths into specific personal truths promises we can also flip this error around number five would be when we make a specific into a general sometimes we find something that is that is very specific and we try to make a universal truth out of it for example luke chapter 18 verse 22 jesus is speaking to this rich young ruler and he says one thing you still lack sell all that you have and distribute to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me So the question is, is this a command that you and I are to obey? Well, some people say that it is, but I think that is an error. They've made a very specific command, an instance of history, into a general universal truth that is binding on all Christians. But as we study this text, we come to understand that what Jesus was doing was very skillfully diagnosing this man's problem and giving him a very customized prescription for his own soul. This man claimed to keep the law. And, and he even rattled off several different commandments that he had obeyed from his youth. And Jesus knew there was one commandment he had a really hard time with, and that is loving the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. You know, that summary of have no other gods before me. And Jesus asked him to put his idol on the altar. He says, will you turn away from all of your possessions to come follow me? He was diagnosing this man's heart. It was not a universal Um, prescription for all men. It was very specific to this instance. Uh, How do we know this is true? Well, we can see it in the context. It makes sense why Jesus is saying this. But also, as we read Scripture, this command is nowhere else repeated. It's nowhere else universalized or, or applied for those who are wealthy. In fact, as we study Scripture, we find that there's other wealthy believers who are commended and they are praised and they didn't do this. They weren't called to this. So as we read this verse in its context and we compare it with other scriptures, it becomes clear this is a specific command to a specific man in a unique situation, and it should not be universalized into a command for all believers. If we make this specific into a general universal command, we are in danger of claiming, and this is very serious, we're in danger of claiming, thus saith the Lord, and laying a burden of God's law on people when God has done no such thing. He has not commanded all Christians to do this. So we should not either. He has not commanded each of us necessarily to do this. So how do we determine if a specific is indicative of a universal truth? Because there will be some times when we find something in a story like this and it's not just for that person. It's for everyone. Well, how do we know? Well, the context will give us clues. We'll compare it with other scripture. We'll consider the authorial intent. Basically, we'll do all those basic steps of Bible study that Stephen has been teaching. As we make observations, ask questions, consider the author's intent, compare it with other scriptures, we can arrive at the proper interpretation. But let's make sure we avoid making a specific like this into a general. Error number six would be confusing descriptive and prescriptive. This is something that is very common, especially as people maybe first become believers or they've never studied the Bible before. They're eager to believe and obey the Bible, which is a good thing. But it's a common mistake to confuse something that is descriptive, simply describing what happened, with something in Scripture that is prescriptive, something that has imperatival force, something that is meant to call us to follow and obey and and, and to follow that example. We can give a a few different examples of this. Uh, One of my favorite examples of this is the story of Gideon laying out the fleece in Judges chapter 6. If you read the book of Judges, you're not supposed to follow anybody's example in the book of Judges. Judges is a time where everyone did what was right in their own eyes and very, very few We're obedient to God and doing it rightly. And in fact, as the book of Judges goes on, it gets worse and worse and worse. There's a few judges at the beginning that seem to do a pretty good job, but the farther time goes on, the the corruption of Israel is spreading. So just understanding the book of Judges as a whole should warn us against following the examples and all of the stories that we read. Well, in Judges chapter six, God tells Gideon to lead an army and go and, and to drive out their invaders. And he promises Gideon he will be with him. And Gideon isn't so sure if God's word can be trusted. Gideon's not so sure if he should actually step out and obey God's word. And he says, okay, Lord, I, and I'm summarizing. It's, it's an extended story. I'm going to lay out this fleece. And Lord, if, if, if the fleece is wet with dew in the morning and all the ground around it is dry, then I know that, that I can trust you and, and believe you. And God accommodates himself to this man's weak faith. The next day he says, okay, that was great, but is it okay if I try one more time? This time, can the fleece be dry and and all the ground around it be wet? And God does it again, and he confirms his word for Gideon. Now the question is, is this setting an example for us? Should we lay out the proverbial fleece and say, God, if this is what you want me to do, then I'm setting up this hypothetical situation, and I'm going to read the circumstances to determine whether or not this is really your will for me. Is this prescriptive is this an example to follow or is this simply descriptive telling us what happens and there's a different lesson we're supposed to learn well it's important we understand Gideon's testing of God is not a sign of faith as we read that story we discover it was indicative of unbelief and in fact it was a violation of God's word the old testament law says you shall not put the Lord your God to the test And that's exactly what Gideon was doing. And in God's graciousness and in his patience, he used this weak man with weak faith, despite his disobedience, to bring deliverance for Israel. This is what God had to work with. This is how bad things were in the time period of the judges. And it shows us that God is great and gracious, not that Gideon's faith is to be emulated in that sense. So Gideon's fleece is not an example of of a prescriptive story. It is simply descriptive. We shouldn't follow his example. Um, I think there's another time and a place where this often comes out, and that's in the early chapters of Acts. We see all these events surrounding the birth of the church. We have Pentecost, and we have this outpouring of the Holy Spirit that is special and unique as we're shifting from this old covenant reality to this new era of the church following the resurrection of Christ. But there are some people who will read the book of Acts and everything they see there, they assume is prescriptive. They assume that we too should speak in tongues if we're truly converted. In fact, years ago, I was actually a kid. There was someone who told me I was going to hell because I'd never spoken in tongues. Because in the book of Acts, it says that those who believe spoke in tongues, so I must not really be saved. Well, the error of that is reading a very unique historical event, Pentecost, and the unique things God was doing As the pages of history were turning to a new era and saying that that's how it's supposed to be all the time. You can read Acts as prescriptive or descriptive. It's actually a little bit of a mix. There are many things we learn from the book of Acts about what the church is and how the church should function. But we also have to recognize this is a transitional time period. Um, The old covenant is giving way to the new. So these new believers speaking in tongues is better understood to be a time-bound event, not a timeless principle. This is something that authenticated that yes, God was bringing Gentiles into the church and he is fulfilling his promises to bring restoration to Israel. That's what those events were meant to signify. So expecting new believers today or expecting all believers today to speak in tongues as a sign of conversion, it misses the whole point of what Acts is doing. Acts is showing us how God was establishing his church in keeping with Old Testament uh, prophecy about his redemptive plan. So we have to be careful reading uh, the book of Acts and say not everything here is necessarily prescriptive. There's a third example we could give. In the book of Joshua, you have Rahab, who is a prostitute, a harlot, who harbors two spies in Jericho. And she's commended for that. She's commended for that in the book of James. She's commended for that in the book of Hebrews. It was an expression of her faith. And because of that, she is spared and her family is spared when Israel comes and God knocks down the walls and the rest of the inhabitants of Jericho are put to the sword. But some people will read that story in Joshua 2. And Rahab tells a lie. She says, there's no spies here. I think they went over the wall and you can catch them if you go that way. But she really had them hidden on her roof, underneath these sheaves that were drying up there. So the question is, do we read Rahab's lie as prescriptive? Is this setting an example that we too um, are justified in lying under certain circumstances? I'll acknowledge this is a, a tricky and difficult question, and there's good Christians who have different views on this, and I'm not even going to attempt to settle all of that. Rahab's lying may be justified, or it may not be. But we have to argue it from the text. And it's not as simple as simply saying, well, Rahab lied, therefore it's okay. We have to ask the question is this prescriptive or is it descriptive? If we look at James chapter 2 and Hebrews chapter 11, it does not commend her for her lying, it commends her for harboring the spies and for trusting God's promise. It's very possible that both James and the author of Hebrews recognize this is a pagan woman. And she didn't even know the first thing about God's law. All she knew is that this is the true God who rescued this whole nation from Egypt. I heard about how he parted the Red Sea. I heard about how he blessed them and provided for them in the wilderness. <clears throat> and I think these little idols I have on the shelf don't mean anything. I'm gonna throw in my lot with Yahweh. They commend her for that. And she lied in the process. Is it possible that there's mingled faith And maybe some blind disobedience to God's law because she didn't know better. That's one possible interpretation. So the focus on her receiving the spies and sending them out in James 2 and Hebrews 11, they don't necessarily speak to this issue of her telling a lie. And the simple fact that she's one of the good guys in the story, that doesn't necessarily mean we are justified in telling a lie. If it is appropriate for Christians to lie under certain extreme circumstances that will have to be established by a broader study of scripture. You're going to have to pull in more verses and make other arguments. It's not enough to simply point at Rahab. See, Rahab did it, so it's okay for us. Because remember, we want to avoid this error of confusing descriptive and prescriptive. So those are three common passages or even sections of scripture where I see this error often popping up, and it's something we need to be on guard against. Error number seven, and this may get a little more complicated, so You guys are big kids. I trust you. You can put your thinking caps on. I know you're sharp. Misusing word studies. Um, Some of you perhaps have had some experience or even some training in doing word studies in the Bible. Maybe you've got a Strong's Concordance, which is a great resource. Maybe you've got some Bible software. Uh, where you can search for different words and you're able to look at where these words occur. Maybe you've even uh, dabbled a little bit in New Testament Greek and, and you like to look up the lexical definition of words and maybe use an interlinear. Um, I, I've often heard, and, and I believe it's true, that sometimes knowing a little bit of Greek is worse than not knowing any Greek. Um, it's sort of like a 16-year-old behind the wheel who still has the paper license because they haven't mailed in like the, the hard plastic version. It can be a little bit dangerous if you don't know what you're doing and you don't have experience. We need to be cautious and careful when doing word studies. There's great benefit there, but there's also some ways to do it wrong. What are a few examples? One is something we could call the root fallacy, the root fallacy. Often we have words in Greek, um, and you can study the root of that word. and, And people think that, well, maybe that shows it shines more light on what this word really means. But I can even show you in English that's not always the case. Our English word butterfly, if you're trying to explain the word butterfly in English, maybe to someone who's learning English, you're not going to help them by analyzing dairy products, okay? You know, that little dish you have in the fridge with that yellow stuff that's really good on toast has nothing to do with the creature that's flying around outside. It's not going to help you understand what the root meaning of butterfly comes from the word butter and the word fly, and well, that's just going to confuse things. That's just how language works. Sometimes words actually evolve and their meanings change over time. Um, we see that in our own language. So we have to be careful not to overread into the etymology of a word and to assume that if I can just understand the root, it's going to somehow add meaning or clarify what this word really means. I-, I honestly want to just encourage you guys we live today with an embarrassment of riches when it comes to our English translations. Our English translations are excellent. There's whole committees of scholars who have dedicated their life to studying Greek and Hebrew. So as we compare the ESV and the New American Standard Version, the NIV, the New King James Version, um, the New English Translation, we compare them all together, we may see some differences, but we can really trust that they're doing a good job. They're not trying to hide the real meaning of this word. So be careful with the root fallacy. Sometimes it helps to study the root of a word. It'll add clarity, but we don't want to overdo that. We want to be cautious there. A second error is one you could call an anachronistic reading. Anachronism is simply getting your history all mixed up. Um, An anachronism, for example, would be if you're reading Sherlock Holmes, and it says that Watson made a phone call. You should not imagine dear Watson pulling out a touchscreen device from his pocket you know, and hitting speed dial. Back in, you know, the days of Sherlock Holmes, phones were very different. So we have to be careful to read things with historical accuracy. Uh, A biblical example would be the word bishop or overseer in 1 Timothy 3.2. The Greek word is episkopos, and it was translated um, in the King James Version, which has a lot of influence on our modern translations, as bishop. But when we read the word bishop, We should not automatically conjure up images of a Roman Catholic clergyman from the Middle Ages. You know, pointy hat, long robes. The word didn't yet have that meaning. This word developed that meaning later on, came to be used a certain way in, in church polity over the centuries. But in the New Testament, the word bishop was just a very simple word for overseer. So we need to be careful to read words and understand what they meant at the time. There's even biblical words that grow in their their usage over time. So we need to be careful to read with a little bit of historical sensitivity when we're doing word studies. A third type of uh, word study error would be failing to understand what's called semantic range. And I see your eyes glazing over a little bit. We're using some technical language here. But semantic range simply means all of the things that a word can mean. There's a range of meaning With words, We see this in our English dictionaries. You'll have definition A, definition B, definition C, and sometimes, you know, rare usage D all the way down at the end, which is not often used, but it can be used that way. Uh, So word can be used in multiple ways. And so it's important we understand which of these multiple ways is the author intending to use right now because the author only means one of those things at a time. I remember years ago, there was a sweet lady I went to church with who labored many hours in Bible study. She was leading a women's Bible study, and I discovered that what she was doing in these Bible studies was using Strong's Concordance or something like that, and she would look up in a verse, okay... um, All the different usages of this word. And she would do an an exhaustive word study. And then she would basically try to, in her explanation of that verse, show how every usage of that word shined greater light onto the text. But that's an exegetical error. The, The word doesn't mean all of those things at once. It means one of them at a time. Language is intended to be more precise than that. So we need to understand semantic range. Uh, A couple of examples, Uh, the Hebrew word yom, which is translated day, has a a number of different meanings. It can refer to a literal 24-hour period. That's a valid usage. I think we see that usage in the first chapter of of, of Genesis. Um, We have morning and evening and numbers and day and night, and it just makes sense. It's 24-hour days. That's what the author is describing. But we also see the word day used to refer to a general season of time. Um, in the day of the judges. You might say, back in my day. You know, back in my day, you know, fill in the blank. Well, we're not using it in a literal 24-hour sense. We're using it to refer to a general season of time. We can also use the word day to refer to a specific event, even if that specific event spans multiple days. In the day of God's wrath, the day of the Lord. There's all these biblical phrases that refer to a specific time period that's concentrated but that doesn't necessarily mean it's 24 hours. So the word yom can be used multiple ways. We need to understand the semantic range. The word fulfill is also another word that has a range of meaning. The word fulfill can have sort of this loose historical correspondence to it. For example, in Matthew, when it says uh, you know, that Jesus and his family escaped, they went down to Egypt to escape Herod, trying to slaughter all of the babies. Matthew writes, so that it would be fulfilled out of Egypt, I've called my son. Well, there's no promise in the Old Testament that says the Messiah would be called out of Egypt. What Matthew is doing is pointing out this is like that. He's saying, just like God called his people Israel out of Egypt, he's also going to bring up his son out of Egypt, that Jesus and his life experience is parallel to Israel and Israel's historical experience. Because he's Israel's Messiah, and he comes to represent his people. He's showing the solidarity Jesus has with the nation. So the word fulfill can sort of mean this historical correspondence, that this is like that. But fulfill can also refer to the happening of an event that has been specifically foretold. That the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, and he was born in Bethlehem. That's promise and fulfillment in a very technical, specific sense. So the word fulfill can have sort of a broad range of meaning. We need to understand how that word is being used in a given text. A third example of semantic range would be the word for church, ecclesia. Sometimes this word is used loosely of any gathering. It can be a social gathering or even a political gathering. In this sense, some of you guys get together for uh, maybe a town hall meeting, that could be called loosely ecclesia. It's this assembly of people gathered together. But in other places, this word ecclesia or church is further developed. As time goes on, it comes to have this special usage where it refers to the body of Christ universally. All people who believe in Jesus are part of his church with a capital C. That's a spiritual reality. But the word ecclesia can also refer to a local physical assembly, the people. That God has saved, who have names and bodies who sit in the same room to worship on Sunday morning is the church. So this word ecclesia can have a range of meaning. So we have to recognize that as you're doing your word studies, these words have a range of meaning. They can be used different ways. The question is, which way is the author intending to use it in this text? So we want to be careful when we do word studies. Um, I think that's probably enough on that. We need to move. We've got two more to cover. Um, Error number eight would be unwarranted symbolism. Unwarranted symbolism. We'll give a simple example. One of my favorite stories, 1 Samuel 17, is the story of David and Goliath. So, what are our options to interpret this? Well, is David a symbol of me, and Goliath is a symbol of the difficulties I face? That's one way that people will read this passage that, that I'm David. And my anxieties about um, finding the right job is Goliath. But God can help me overcome that obstacle. Or whatever it may be. You fill in the blanks. Well, is that the right way to read this text? Well, I think that interpretation makes multiple mistakes. First of all, it reads me into the story. So it's making uh, you know, that earlier error we talked about. But it's also bringing in unwarranted symbolism. Is this story intended to be read symbolically? is that the author's point? Is that the type of literature this is in 1 Samuel? Well, the answer is no. This is unwarranted symbolism. There's no clues in the text. The genre itself is not meant to be taken that way. And so we want to be careful not to um, read ourselves into it and try to find symbolic meaning. So let's try a second interpretation. Is David a symbol of Jesus and Goliath a symbol of sin? Well, this is better And it's better because I'm not reading myself into the text anymore. I'm seeking to see Christ. I want to know Jesus. I want to see his glory. I want to see his purpose of redemption. And I find this story and I go, aha, this is better theologically. This puts Jesus at the center and it shows God's plan of redemption. But this still misses the point of the text. I would say this is a case of of finding the right doctrine in the wrong text. Yes, Jesus is our Savior who overcomes sin and death on our behalf. And Jesus is our hero. Yes, that is true. But I don't think that's the main point that this text is intended to teach. And so while this interpretation is better than the first one, and while it seeks to honor Christ, I think it fails to do so. Because it puts Christ into a text that he's not necessarily there in that way. And that's not necessarily honoring to him. Let's give it a third try. What's a better way to interpret this? Maybe David and Goliath is not symbolic at all. Maybe this is rather a historical account of zealous faith in God's covenant promise. David believed what God had said to Abraham, that those who curse you, I will curse. And Goliath is out there cursing Israel's armies and cursing Israel's God. And David goes, I know who God is and I know what God said. He can't do that. He has zealous faith in God's covenant promise, and he has courage and confidence that God will give him victory over this blaspheming enemy. And the result of all of this is that God is glorified. I think that's a better interpretation, and and we even find it in the text where David, when he's sort of in that trash-talking moment with Goliath, says he's going to cut off his head, feed him to the animals, but there's a reason, so that everyone will know that there's a God in Israel. David was zealous for God's glory, for God's fame, for God's reputation. And guess what? God is also zealous for his glory and his fame and his reputation, which means David and God are on the same side in this moment. And that's why God empowered even this small person who had weaknesses to overcome this impossible enemy. And that teaches us a lesson that God always keeps his promises, he's zealous for his glory, and he can use us, he can use you, he can use me to further his purposes no matter what the obstacles are. And we see this power displayed most obviously in the cross through the son of David, yes. We can get there. We can trace it through history and show how this victory foreshadows a later, different, greater victory. But we should not interpret this passage symbolically because if we do, we miss what's actually happening in history, So unwarranted symbolism is one error that people make in reading scripture. And then a final, a final error. We'll close with this. Using a passage that is less clear and more difficult as a lens to interpret another passage that is more clear and less difficult. Uh, There's a very simple principle that we use scripture to interpret scripture. But not all scripture is equally clear or easy to understand. And as a general rule of thumb, we should use the things that are easier to establish as sort of guidelines that help us establish the other parts. Just like when you do a puzzle. We usually do the outside edges first, right? You start with the corners. There's only four of them. They're easy to find. And you can look at the cover on the box and figure out exactly where they go. And then you build out from there, and you use that, and then at the end, you're left with like 27 pieces that are all the same color, and then it's process of elimination. But you don't start with those. I mean, you could, but that'd be really inefficient. It would take you a long time. It's like that with Bible study. We find the pieces that are easier and more clear, and we start with those, and then we use those to help us figure out the other parts that are uh, maybe less clear. Here's Here's an example. Um, several of the Gospels include this parable about the soils, you know, the seed that falls on different types of soil. So here's an interpretive question. Does the two types that fall away, the seed on the, the rocky soil and the seed that falls on the thorny ground, does that mean that we can lose our salvation? Some people will read that passage. And, they'll, and that's what they'll come away with is, wow, if, if I get distracted by the world, or if I quit when things get hard, I will lose my salvation. Well, is that the right interpretation? Can we lose our salvation? If you only read this text, well, maybe that's what you would come away with. Well, we have to use other verses that are more clear because they rule out this interpretation. Jesus says, no, you can't lose your salvation. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. So Jesus says, no. John also says no. First John chapter 2 explains this phenomenon of people falling away. He says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. If they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they, are all, that they all are not of us. So Jesus says no. John says no. And Paul says no too. Romans chapter 8. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. Later in verse 39, he says that neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation is able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now we can go, time would fail us. We could go to 15 other texts that would make the same point. So as all of these other texts make very, very clear theological points, we should use those texts that are more direct and more clear as guiding principles to interpret this parable about the soils. That that what Jesus is teaching does not mean that we can lose our salvation. So that's an error that people will make, is is use a less clear text to interpret the more clear. So that's nine common Bible study errors that we've just sort of given a very brief survey of. I would encourage you to be on guard against those. But don't let your fear of making mistakes keep you from getting into the Bible yourself. Go study it dig in. It's a process. We all learn. We all get better at it with time. And I trust that as you do so, it will be a blessing. So you guys are dismissed. We'll be back here in 15 minutes for worship. It's wonderful to be with you all this morning. We'll see you in a few minutes.